One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. If you have a Bible with you, turn it into the Gospel of Mark that's in the New Testament. It's the, uh, the, the third book of the New Testament, or sorry, second book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the text, it's only really one verse. I'll be reading two, but it's in your order of worship. And if you don't own a Bible, there, there are a few on the back table I want you to grab either right now or before you leave. That's our gift to you. I uh, want you to have one of those, okay? As I said before, this summer, we're, we're taking, uh, during the fall and the spring, we, we, as a church, we order our lives around a book of the Bible, right? Like, um, the last year we were doing the book of Ecclesiastes, in the fall we'll be turning towards Galatians. Uh, but in the summer, we take a more topical approach to things, and we're, we're taking a look at what the core practices of Christianity are. What, it, what is it that Christians do? Uh, things like worship and repentance and prayer, all these churchy words, right? Uh, last week we looked at reconciliation. Uh, the week before that, we looked at, at reading the Bible, things like that. Uh, they're all part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, all part of what it means to walk after Jesus. And this week, we look at the idea of multiplication, okay? The idea of multiplication. Because, see, Jesus seemed to have this expectation that what, he, that what he was doing was creating a movement, not working in a few people, but creating a movement, people who would multiply themselves, people who would gain more, that the number of Christians was meant to grow, and that that growth wouldn't come from professionals, right, like me, it would come from normal people, like, you know, the rest of us. We are to walk in multiplication. So if you have your place in Mark chapter 1, as is our habit, would you stand as we read the scripture this morning, that stand underneath God's very word. Be reading Mark chapter 1, just verses 16 and 17, okay? Friends, let's remember as we hear this, this is God's word. It's not something we chose for ourselves Something that we chose said, let's take this book and not this one, or let's go with this. This is God's word. It lays claim on us. Hear it in that way. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, so we come into this place, we come with multiple different stories. Some of us are, are here uh, curious, others of us are here bored. We're already thinking about what we're doing after this. We're thinking about a game that's going on tonight at 6. Uh, we're, we're in different places. We need you to come and to speak to us. To preach your gospel to us. To show us what it is to, to, to be a follower of Christ. And so we ask that you would do that. You would open our hearts, open our minds that you would speak, you let Christ and his cross come to the forefront, let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life. And so speak them to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So as I read this text this week, I tried to imagine what it would be like if I were to go walk down through the streets of the city of Stanton and uh, walk past people at their places of work, maybe knock on the window and be like, Hey! Come follow me. You know, like, no, no, like, where we're going, 
what's going to happen after that, what the future holds. Just, hey, come follow me. Just let's go. Somehow I'm not sure that would go well for me. Uh, but, you know, three out of the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these, these stories that tell the, the life of Jesus, um, three out of the four of the Gospels tell this story, the same story, almost identically. It's a pretty big deal. Jesus walks up and tells dudes who are not only working, they're not only just workers, right? They actually own the business. So it's one thing if you, you're an employee, you're not real happy with your work anyway, and they're like, hey, come follow me. You're like, sure, what do I got to lose? But they actually own the business. He says, come and follow me, and then they do. What is it about this guy that would move someone to do that? What exactly did they understand he was saying to them? And, and what is this new life that he was calling, it, calling them to? That, that's the questions that we're taking to the, the Bible this morning. So, as always, if you're familiar with Holy Cross, you know this. There's an outline in your bulletin that's just to help you take notes. If, if, if you're not a note-taker, you don't really care about that, don't, don't feel any compulsion to take it out. It's there if you need it. But we're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at the call, we're going to look at the promise, and then finally we're going to look at the result. Okay? Real simple. The call, the promise, and the result. Now, before we get to that, let me say a quick word about the guy whose name is on this book, right? Um, uh, kind of church tradition tells us that Mark, or John Mark, uh, depending on what you want to call him, is the author of this account of Jesus' life. And, and Mark was kind of your typical rich kid. In Acts chapter 12, it tells us that his mom uh, had, a, had a house that was large enough to hold a, a host a house church. right? So other Christians would come there, they would do church like in his living room. Like it was... You know, big place, and she had servants. So, so Mark was a rich kid, uh, and actually, many scholars believe that at the end of Mark's gospel, there's a story when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. When there's, it says there's this kid who's hanging out there. It's this young kid, and and um, and he's he's wearing a, a linen kind of, I don't know, onesie. I don't. It's, a, it's a, you know, full length thing, robe, and um, it's not a onesie because there was no snaps, but it, it does go to his feet, right? And so he, he, he's wearing this thing, which would have been the normal uh, dress of, a, of, of, of someone who's wealthy. And, and when, he, when Jesus gets arrested, he, things get rough. He makes a break for it. And then someone tries to grab him. And they grab his clothes. And he keeps running. And his clothes don't. And so, like, literally, it tells the story of this kid who, running away from the rest of Jesus, runs away buck naked. And, and I, like, I'm serious. Like, you can look that up in Mark 14. Like, it's really there. And so, uh, that's who this guy is. And he ends up eventually traveling with Paul and Barnabas, who were the kind of a church planting team that went throughout the Mediterranean world. And, um, but once again, as seems to be his way of being when things get tough with Paul and Barnabas in a city called Pamphylia, he, he beats it back home. He, he runs back to mama. So much, and, it, and it angers the Apostle Paul so much that later when Barnabas is like, hey, I know what we need to do. We need to get Mark on our team. And Paul's like, I ain't taking that kid back. He, he ran out on us last time. And they have such an argument over it, they end up splitting up. The band breaks up and they go in two different directions. Um, and, but we're, eventually we're told that, that Mark ends up doing the same kind of thing with the Apostle Peter so that in First Peter, in, Paul, in Peter's letter, First Peter, he says that he's pastoring, Mark is pastoring with Peter in Rome, which quite frankly was the last place a rich Jewish kid would want to be. He's pretty well educated, and frankly he's incredibly honest about himself. Why else would you tell a story about you getting stripped buck naked when Jesus is getting arrested? Like, he's honest about himself, and he's honest about the other leaders of the Christian church. He's honest about those things because he wants to make much of Jesus. So that's Mark. But let me set the stage of what's going on. 
you kind of got the, the picture from, from this. Like, two sets of brothers, because we didn't get to, to Andrew and, and uh, or to John and to James, but they're there too. If you kept going, you would read about them. Two sets of brothers are, are working the boats. They're, they're coming in after, after uh, their hard um, day or night of fishing, and, and they're, they're cleaning their nets, and they're, they're hanging out the Sea of Galilee. Simon and Andrew and James and John. And Jesus walks by them and says, come follow me. Now, first, let's look at this call, seeing first the one who calls. Now, if you were Jewish and you were familiar with the story of the Bible, uh, this little act says something about the guy who's doing it. Because there's another story about a dude who's minding his own business in the city that he lives in. And, and God comes to him and says, hey, come with me. You're going to go somewhere else, Right. He doesn't talk about where, he doesn't talk about even who he is, he just says come and, and go, and, and that's the story of Abraham. Now to most of us that means very little, but that means a ton to those who believe the story of the Bible. Because you see, the Bible's really clear that the world is messed up, and the Bible's even clearer on the fact that the world is messed up because you and I are messed up. The world's messed up because we're messed up. Like, I don't need to convince you of that, right? I mean, I don't, you don't need to be convinced the world's jacked up, right? I mean, you know this, you, you scan the news on your device, you... You understand the, you, you watch life unfold in your neighborhood. You watch it unfold in your home. You watch it unfold in your head. You know things aren't right. Things are messed up. And the Bible says that we're messed up because of this thing called sin. Now, most of us have either been taught or we assume that when we say, especially in American context, when you say sin, what you mean is something having to do with sex and drugs. Okay? That's what we generally think. But, but that's not exactly it, right? The Bible says that that it's not necessarily, it's not so much what we do as it is who we are. It's not so much the actions that take place as it is the state that we are in, that we are by nature sinners. We sin because we are sinners. Fundamentally, sin is about independence from God. That you and I and all of us, there's not a single person in the world who doesn't want to be the captain of their own fate. I want to be, I want to call the shots. Now, some of us exercise that by doing our own thing, living our own way, and that's where we come to associate these things, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that stuff, whatever. But others of us, we don't, we don't do it that way. We do it more like um, we do our independence from God by being nice and good and clean and everything's great so that we can look good in front of others. We can have a nice reputation. We like our reputations, right? Or maybe it's because we want to, not, not our reputation, but we want God to like us so we do good things. The Bible says, strangely enough, both are signs of sin. They're both signs of our state. But see, if that's our nature, the big problem is we can't change our nature. You can't simply decide one day that that's not who you are. It would be like deciding one day, today I will breathe water. Like, good luck with that. It's going to go badly. Like, don't, don't try that at home. Like, we are, we are stuck in sin. And because of that, we are guilty before God. But the good news is that God determined to make things right. That, that's part of the story, too. He He wanted to reconcile us to himself, to deal with our guilt, to return us to dependence on him. And that's where Abraham comes into play. In the Old Testament, God chose Abraham. He he came and he called him. He said, come with me when Abraham wasn't looking for him. Abraham's in in the city of Ur, like doing his own thing, worshiping his own gods. Pretty wealthy dude, hanging out. God came and said, come on with me. I'll show you where we're going on the way. Like, come on. And he said, Abraham, it's going to be through you and your family that I'm going to rescue humanity. And so when Jesus comes and he looks to these guys and he says the same thing, come after me, they would have heard a couple things. 
First thing is that they would have heard that Jesus is doing the same thing that the God of the Old Testament did. Right? Now, the New Testament is very upfront about something that's really important. That Jesus claimed to be God. Right? The Christian conception of God, if that's unfamiliar to you, is that God exists as, as one God in three persons. Like one essence and three persons. Uh, another a pastor in, in St. Louis says it's one, God is one what and three who's. Like, uh, that, that is one essence and, and three persons. And Jesus claimed to be the second of these that we call God the Son. And so they would have heard Jesus claim to this. In fact, in, in Luke's take on this passage, in Luke chapter 5, another gospel writer, uh, they, he fleshes out the story a little bit. So the way the story works is, is Jesus is standing on the shore and he tells Peter, hey, throw your nets out over there. Peter's been fishing all night. He's got nothing. He's like, dude, you're a carpenter. Like, what do you know of fishing? He's like, I know. Just throw the nets over there. He's like, all right, if, if you'll be quiet, I'll throw the nets over there. And he throws the nets over there. He can't pull up the fish. There's so many. And suddenly he realizes who this guy is. And he says, Lord, away from me. I'm a sinful man. He said, you're not just a man. You're God. But the second thing that they'd hear is that God's rescue plan is coming to fruition. What God began in Abraham is finally coming true. Jesus is initiating with them in the same way that God did with Abraham. These guys weren't looking for Jesus. They may have known who he was because he was around Galilee at the time. But it's not like they were looking for him. They're, They're running their business, right? Good businessmen, running their business. But Jesus encountered them and sought them out. Okay, more about this in a minute. That deals with the one's calling, but now let's look at our place following. Listen, what Jesus is doing here is more than a little strange. Because most of us, when we, when we think about Jesus, especially culturally, we, we're kind of conditioned to think of Jesus as like this good teacher. A good teacher who's teaching good moral truths, and that's kind of who he is and what he's about. But this breaks that wide open. Because you see, rabbis, Jewish teachers at the time, men who taught good moral truths, good ways to be, they did not go seeking after their disciples. They didn't go seeking after learners. Learners sought them. Jesus wouldn't have gone chasing after disciples if he was just a good moral teacher. He would have set up shop. He would have started proclaiming how great his interpretation of the law is. And they would have flocked to him. But that's not what he did. Because Jesus isn't looking for learners. Jesus isn't looking for people to come and just learn neat stuff. A few great things to store in their heads. Jesus is looking for followers. Those who would come after him. Those who would be apprentices under him. Do the things that he is doing. What's more, did you notice how Jesus called them? Because he says, come follow me. What he didn't say is, is, come let me join your agenda. Let me be part of your belief system. Uh, your thoughts on the world. Can I come and be a part of your life? Look, look in, in, in the Bible it's really clear, Jesus does not play well with others when it comes to things like that. That, that is not his normal M.O., Mark start, starts off his very gospel, like right there in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now, we tend to think Christ is like Jesus' last name, but it's not. Christ is a title. It's, it, it's a title in Greek that would have been a translation of a Hebrew word that meant king. Kings don't join up with your plan. Kings call you to join theirs. Right? Listen. Lots of people chased Jesus during his ministry. And they said, Jesus, I want to follow you. He's like, great, but first, uh, I need to go bury my father. He's, yeah, I don't know. what." And Jesus said, look, man, you've come follow me. You let the dead bury the dead. Uh, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first I've got to, no, 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 no. If you want to follow me, come follow me. 
but you gotta, you got to do it. No one puts their hand to the plow and turns around and looks the other way. Come follow me. Listen to me clearly. Jesus is not interested in seeing where he can fit in your life. That's not what he's about. He's not interested in finding that little piece of your spirituality that he's hoping to come and make a little nicer, to pretty up, to put some flowers in. Jesus is not looking to see where he can fit into your life. He is saying that we need to follow him to come be a part of what he is doing. Not to help us see where we we can make him part of what we're doing. He says, you need to follow me. You need to trust me. Now, let's be honest. That's a little arrogant, isn't it? I mean, I know we don't want to associate arrogance with Jesus. All right, that we have this kind of, even a cultural backlash. Whoa, whoa, okay. Well, Christians are arrogant, but Jesus, I don't know if I'm going to. No, no, look. What Jesus is saying right here. He's saying that we need to follow him. I mean, who is he to say that? I mean, look, shouldn't we have like a dialogue here? A conversation. That's what we do in our culture, right? That's what we love to do. Let's have a conversation about this. Let's enter into a dialogue so we can, you can express what you think and I can express what I think. Jesus doesn't seem really interested in that. This is a summons. Who is he to summon? Mark's already told you. He is Jesus Christ, Son of God. You see, Jesus in Christianity, uh, Jesus first and then Christians since, doesn't ma- we don't make the claim that Christianity is a path or even the best path. The claim is that Jesus is the truth. The truth. The notion that... Uh, now, look, before you get kind of really defensive at that, and some of you are, some of you are like, wait, uh, I hate that. Can we not... Like, we hate the idea that someone is laying out kind of an absolute truth. But remember, that's not a rare claim. Because if, if, you're, if you're sitting right here right now, and you're thinking to yourself, like, that, look, there's no such thing as absolute truth. The only real absolute truth is there is absolute truth. Well, you've kind of just made the same claim that Jesus did. Right? I mean, the reality is when we tell people they can't believe that their system is the only truth, what we're telling them is that our system is. That our system is the only truth, and our system says that no one else has all the truth except us. So let's not be so righteously indignant when we hear Christians saying that Jesus is the truth. We all make such claims, every one of us. It's kind of the nature of being human. The question is whether those claims make the most sense of the world. And frankly, if if I'm being honest with you, because look, I didn't grow up in this. I came to this kind of later... I know from experience, no one consistently fully believes that everyone's beliefs are equally valid. I mean, you may think that until your car gets stolen. Because someone believed they had as much right to that vehicle as you did. Right? But that's the call. Now let's look at the promise. We'll come back to that stuff in a second. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you. Now stop there. This is important because it highlights the one who acts. When I said that these four dudes, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and these four dudes would have... Would have uh, heard Jesus' words as a sign that God was finally coming to execute his rescue plan. Here's what I meant. When God chose Abraham and he said, through you and your family, I'm going to do this rescue stuff. I'm going to make the world right. I'm going to fix all of our problem. Uh, there, was, there was one problem, right? Abraham and his family were just as messed up as the rest of us. When I say the rest of us, I mean like the rest of us. There's, there's maybe like a couple people in this room who can claim some form of Jewish heritage. The rest of us are what the ancient world would have called Gentiles, Right? We're, we're the everybody else. And as we heard last week, we were without hope and without God in the world. But Abraham and his family were in the same position we were. 
They couldn't rescue anyone because they needed rescue. And you can't rescue someone else if you need to be rescued. If you're stuck in an avalanche, you can't rescue someone else stuck in an avalanche. Like, you're both stuck. And that's the way Abraham's family were, was. I mean, you, can't, you certainly can't deal with your independence problem independently, right? But in fact, God never intended them to do it in the first place. Not exactly. Because you see, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And as, the, as a human, he was a descendant of Abraham. See, this is the main difference between Christianity and all the other world religions or philosophies. Because everything else tells you, here's what you need to do to get to God. Here's what you need to do to make things right between you and God. But that's not what Christianity tells you. I know some of us are like, what do you mean? I thought that's exactly what Christianity told me. No, no, no. Christianity doesn't tell you here's what you need to, do, need to do to get to God. Christianity tells you here's what God did to get to you. It doesn't tell you here's what you need to do to make things right between you and God. It tells you here's what God did to make things right between you and Him. You see, because we couldn't live the life we needed to, loving God with everything we've got, seeking each other's good, Jesus did that. He did that for us. He came and he lived the way we should have. He lived as a faithful one to God. But also since our lives uh, have made us guilty before God, Jesus also died to bear the weight of that betrayal, to bear our guilt before God. Look, I don't care if your life looks clean or if it looks like a train wreck. If you do the, I need a good reputation thing, or you do the, I'm just going to go do what I want thing, all of us are equally in need of rescue. And Jesus came to rescue us. Our call is to simply place our trust in him instead of in our own efforts. You see, if our problem is independence from God, you can't overcome that by yourself. You can't, we can't make ourselves right independently. That's furthering the problem. But if, but if Jesus truly is God, then trusting in him is returning to the dependence that we were made for. Jesus forms us. He doesn't say, come and follow me to make yourselves right. He forms us. And look, this, this cuts against our natural bent for merit, right? We want to be worthy because our, our actions are worthy. We want someone to look at us and they want us to look at our resume or our, our CV or, or our, our list of goodness, our, our reputation, and say, that person is great, he is worthy. But don't you understand, before God, you are not worthy because of what you have done. You are worthy because of what he did. You are worthy because of what he did. Now, some of you are thinking, like, Rick, you don't understand what I did. You're right, I don't. And you don't know what I did. And frankly, I don't need to know. What I do know is that when we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And if God is willing to lay down his life for you, then he has given you worth. Your works, your deeds haven't done it. He has. And so trust in him. And that leads us to our place. Because you see, many of us in this room feel okay about what I just said. Most of us in this room are probably Christians, right? It's how we came to become Christians. We, we believe that Jesus was enough, that, that, he, that our works couldn't do it, that his needed to do it, that, that we, we couldn't make up for our sin, that Jesus needed to pay for our sin. And we trusted in that, right? We trusted that we were sinners in need of the grace that is freely offered in Jesus. We've embraced that truth, but what about now? See, we're about to talk about multiplication. About to talk about growing as a Christian and then seeing others grow into that life as well. And so Jesus' words here matter to us, no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus. We follow, he forms. We follow him, he forms us. We trust in him, get to know him, grow in him, and he changes us. And so we're like, Rick, okay, but you're about to talk about being 
this fissure of people. I don't know how to do that. Do you, of course you don't. Did you think Peter did? He's like, fisher of men. Okay, I got my net. You know, like, no, he didn't know what he was doing either. He's like, I, I don't know how to do ministry. I don't know how to do whatever. Of course you don't. Jesus didn't say, come and follow me and figure this out. Jesus said, come and follow me and I will make you. But others of us aren't in that position. We're like go-getters, right? And so we're like, okay, what's the plan? What's the strategy? How can I advance? Jesus says, follow me. And we're like, yeah, I get that. But what then? Jesus like, follow me. You follow me. It is trusting in Jesus and his work that reconciles, with, reconciles us with God. And it is trusting in Jesus and his work that, that grows us in that relationship with God. So that's the call and that's the promise. Lastly, let's look at the result. The last part of this phrase, Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, let me say up front that it is easy to think that Jesus picked this metaphor because he's walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees dudes in boats with nets, okay? That would be really easy for us to think, and I do think that there is a bit of that, like, oh, this, this might be a helpful metaphor. But at the same time, uh, this idea of being a fisher, of, of fishing for people, would have been familiar. Because um, in, in one of the prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, okay? In, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 16, I believe, um, God talked about what would happen when he came to rescue Humanity. When he came to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham, that one of the ways that that would come is that he would he would come and send out fishers, fishermen that would rescue us, to grapple us, and to restore us to himself. In other words, this image is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, in other words, that the time has come. God is going to deal with our guilt. He's going to deal with our betrayal of him. He's going to rescue us from our sin, and he's going to do it through random dudes like this who are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Let me be more clear. When Jesus says that he is going to make them into fishers of people, he means that through them he's going to gather more disciples. Through them, more people will become Christians. Okay? To be even more clear, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to form them so that they will begin to do what he is doing right then. What is Jesus doing right then? He's getting followers. What is he calling them to do? He's going to form them into people who go get him more followers. He's saying, I'm going to, you come follow me, I'm going to make you into into those who are doing what I am doing. They encounter Jesus on the shore of Galilee. He calls them to know him by following them, uh, by following him, and then he declares that they will show him to others by doing what he is doing. Now, what I want to point out is the very clear teaching of this passage that I think if we miss, we are in trouble, okay? Becoming a fisher of people, helping others encounter, know, and show Jesus is organically linked to following him. Did you see that? Come and follow me, and I will do this. If we are following Jesus, this is what will happen in following him. It is not a second phase. It is not a further point. It is not something left up to those who feel especially gifted or especially called. Disciples making disciples, is the, is, that is what it means to be a Christian. If you are here this morning and you think, I'm really mature in my faith, and to you that means I'm pretty good internally, and you're like, but, but what about making disciples? Like, I, I leave that to others. No. 
You may think you're mature. You're not. I'm sorry. You may be on your way to maturity. But a mature disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is also making disciples, multiplying themselves. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Christian, are you listening to me? This is not an addendum to the Christian life. Jesus says, follow me. If you're following me, I will make you into this. Now, some of us in this room who aren't Christian are thinking right now, you see, like, this is my problem with Christians. This is my problem with Christianity. All this converting stuff. Why can't you just believe what you believe without trying to get others to believe it? Now, that is a really good question that deserves a far longer answer than this, but I want to answer briefly. First, our culture tends to think that people seek converts for their way of being as a way to, um, for them. Like, I'm going to seek to see other people converted for me. And what that means is I'm going to grow my power base, right? Because we think of everything in power. I'm going to make myself a power base. Or uh, if I get more people around me who believe what I believe, I'll feel better about myself, feel better about what I believe. See, I must be right. Look at all these people who agree with me, right? That's not Christianity, okay? Christianity says that gaining convert, like seeing to, seeking to see other people converted has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with you. Here's what I mean. I mean, think about it this way. If I believe that the only way to escape God's judgment, and not just to escape God's future judgment, but the only way to flourish, to truly flourish as a human right now, is through faith in Jesus, but I never told you that, I am personally condemning you. It, 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 was like, it would be like me knowing that I have the cure for cancer, knowing you have cancer, and going, eh, I don't want to be weird. Look, I have this cure for cancer. Like, I know you think this is weird, but I have this cure for cancer. And if we don't say that, we are personally condemning the person to death. It is not loving to let people continue in what we understand to be self-destruction. Now, you may not agree that it's self-destruction. You may not agree that, with that evaluation. That, Like, look, man, I, my life is my life. I'm not... I'm not going, but I get that. You may not agree with that. We can talk about that. But what I'm trying to help you see is why we do it, okay? We we seek to see other people come to know Jesus, not because we feel insecure, but out of love. We don't do it perfectly, but that's the core of it. Second, if, if, if you say to yourself, like, why, why can't you just believe what you believe without trying to see others believe it? Don't, don't you understand that even with that statement, you're trying to convert me, you're trying to convert me to your position. Like, it's, it's Western secularism that said that you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can, it's all this individualized, personal thing. And you can believe it as long as you don't seek to see others believe it. You, we, we have no objective reason for thinking that's good. We believe that on a matter of faith. And so your faith tells you that, you shouldn't, that people shouldn't seek to convert other people. And so if you're trying to tell me to do that, you're trying to convert me to your faith just as much as I'm trying to convert you to mine. Think about it. Let me conclude by talking about catching fish. Because I, I've, just, I've just kind of rolled out the idea that multiplication is the task of every Christian. Not just the professionals. The task of every Christian. Following Jesus means being a fisher of people. But how? How? I mean, listen, I, I've just argued that these dudes weren't looking for Jesus, that these guys can't make themselves into fishermen, uh, that, that, uh, that God initiates with us. So how is it that we are going, you know, if we're going to use the metaphor, how, how are we going to catch fish? 
Well, to use the metaphor again, fishermen never make fish swim into their nets, right? But they do go to where the fish are, and they do let the nets down, okay? So in light of that, let me give you a few next steps, okay? First and foremost, you will not be a fisher of people if you aren't following Jesus. Let's get first things first, okay? Trying to see other people encounter Jesus does not give you brownie points with God. There's not this kind of eternal scale up there, and if you win enough conversions, it tips in your favor. You you can't get brownie points with God. It doesn't happen. Follow Jesus first. Trust in Him. Rest on His work. So first, put the first things first. Second, get around fish. Get around fish. Look, you need relationships with people who don't believe what you believe. If Christians are called to multiply themselves but are never around non-Christians, how is that going to happen? It's kind of hard to see how that's going to happen. So first, follow Jesus. Second, get around people who don't agree with you. Third, pray. Look, again, fishermen don't make fish swim to their nets. Christians don't make other Christians. We can't. It's not in our power. We didn't make ourselves become Christians. We can't make them become Christians. So we need to pray. And so I'm going I'm to ask you to do this. Consistently pray for three to five friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members, whatever. Pray for them consistently. When I say consistently, I mean at least like four to five times a week. It'd be great if you could do it every day, but four or five times a week. Pray that God would work in their hearts. Make them open to hearing the gospel. Okay, so follow Jesus. Get to where the fish are. Pray. Fourth, put down the nets. You got to put down the nets, guys. Now, that may mean sharing the gospel with them. If you're not super comfortable with that and don't know how to do that, it may just mean inviting them here. And I tell you this all the time. If you're not comfortable sharing the gospel with your friends or your neighbors, you bring them here and I promise I will do it. They will hear it here. And all you got to do is take them out of lunch or take them back to your house and be like, what did you think about what that crazy dude said? And then you just talk about it. Invite them to church. Invite them to your small group. But it does mean being prepared to see them become Christians. If you don't know how to explain the gospel, we have these little books on the back table called The Story. Grab one. If we run out, I I will get you more. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. Talk to your small group leaders. But but be prepared, okay? All right, let me wrap up. This is a scary aspect of following Jesus, right? Not a single one of us doesn't get nervous about this idea because none of us want to be seen as weird. Bro, We are weird. Have you ever thought about what we believe? I mean, honestly. Have you thought about what we believe? Christians believe that the only hope for any of us in life and in death is bound up with a crucified Jewish carpenter who spent three years talking to people, was crucified by Romans, and then, oh, we believe three days after he was dead, he came out of a tomb hung out with people for 40 days, showing them the scars on his hands, and said, oh, by the way, now I'm out of the tomb, do you understand that I am the risen God of the universe who made everything? And then he goes in his body, not in his soul, but in his body, up to reign in heaven, where he reigns right now over his kingdom until one day he comes to judge the living and the dead. That is bizarro land. That is weird. If you believe that, and I do, We are weird. That is strange. You can't pretty that up. How do you make that culturally acceptable without denying it? 
You can't. So how do we do it? If it's so scary, we don't want to be seen as weird. It is weird. How do we do it? Listen to me. You will commend to others that which you cherish. You know this. You see a new TV show that you love. Some of y'all are TV junkies. I know because you're constantly like, you should watch this. Okay, or music. And you're like, you've got to listen to this new artist. Or you've got to come see, or you've got to meet my new friend. Right? You will commend that which you cherish. And this is why Jesus says, the first and foremost thing is to follow me. Because as you see how great your sin is, and how great the grace of God in Jesus is, then you will want to see others experience that grace and that freedom and that love that you have. If you have seen how great the grace of God in Jesus is, then you will want to see others give Him praise because you know that your voice is not enough to do it. And if you see how free the grace of God in Jesus is, then you will know that no one is too far from it because you weren't. Because I wasn't. Listen, if Jesus can save me, He can save any y'all. He can save anybody. If I know that He can rescue you, I am willing to see Him do it. And I am willing to be weird (laughs) to see that happen. When you see how Jesus rescued you, you will be free to help people encounter Jesus, to know Him, and to follow Him by showing Him to others. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come and, and acknowledge the fact many of us are in different places, some of us in the room are deeply offended because we've been told that Jesus is the way And in fact, the goal of Christianity is to see other people become Christians. And that's deeply offensive to us. And others of us are offended because we're like, I want to just be a Christian and not have to talk about it. Some of us are just scared. Others of us are maybe emboldened. We all need the gospel. And so we ask that that is what we take from here, the gospel. Because nothing will change anything except the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so dig that deep into our hearts and produce fruit from it, we ask our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen.